Welcome to episode one of Basecamp Beta. This is Chris. I'm Sean. And the other Chris, CZ. This is the trial run for this little podcast we're doing, where we're going to be talking about music. Uh, We'll be critiquing music, the music industry. Uh, We'll probably be talking about one too many dumb tweets. And just generally having a platform for an engaged and hopefully listenable and enjoyable and somewhat personal to have a a conversation about music that isn't from a sort of top-down level um, but tries to be from a more personal level. This is where subtweets come to life. (laughs) We're going to have a good time doing it too. These are our personal favorites, our collective, the music that we love the three of us, our guests, our friends, um, the music that we love, the music we want to talk about, the music that we feel sheds a light on the current moment. But not, I mean, not, not just things we all unanimously agree upon either, though. Like, we, we will actively encourage, uh, you know, dissent amongst the ranks. Of course, uh, yeah. So we're just talking about music that we think people ought to listen to and understand. and Music that people should be talking about, including us. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I think it's important to... I, I think the reason for this and, and the reason to underline that this is not a podcast of a definitive uh, collection of music that is crucial for critical to you, the 21st century, you know, enlightened music consumer to listen to. The reason we are specifically not doing that is because that is what the sort of critical music discourse has boiled down to at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, all that mm-hmm. it really exists are perceived are are sort of platforms that sort of take authority upon themselves and say these are the important things right this this is the canon this is what you must know you can learn it in uh three hours of study this weekend if you want and then you will be an expert on techno or nigerian funk or or xyz yeah yeah there we go and i think that's done quite a disservice. Um, One thing we have all talked about before is the idea of authority in music and in music journalism and music criticism in discussions about music. Um, None of us are authorities on music. We do not pretend to be. Um, We have good taste, though. Yeah. Well, you know, I I don't know about myself. Uh, Everyone except Sean. All of us except Sean have good taste. My taste is very, very dubious at best. It's true. Well, I, mean, I know. I'm, I know a lot about music, though. I'm so. looking forward right. to the Happy Hardcore episode, but I'm not. <laughs> I will go off on some Happy Hardcore. Uh, yeah, you, you probably are more into Happy Hardcore than I am. Yeah, actually. <laughs> okay. Well, I see. This is the case of me saying something I regret. I didn't mean to disparage Happy Hardcore. If you listen to Happy Hardcore, you are wrong. It's okay. <laughs> you know, I'm not shitting on it, but. I, I, I gotta say I love uh, I have a deep deep fondness for uh, for the Happy Hardcore Project. Bang with an exclamation point! Give me a reason for your love. Something inside is so unreal. I'm a prisoner in your world. Yeah, wow, it's, it's, yeah. we've we've already made everyone's day. <laughs> I mean, we've all been we've all been there. We've all <laughs> we've all been there. We've all been there. We we've all had that song mean something to us. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Music criticism um, now tends to boil down to a regurgitation of basic context, artist biography, label biography, and a regurgitation of a press sheet. Yeah, I mean, yeah, music journalism is just is just it's just one sheets. That's what it is. Yeah, and yeah. The, the reason for that is because I think a lot of people perceive that adopting this incredibly anonymous tone lends them a sense of authority. This isn't me saying it. This isn't me, uh, you know, whoever, with my personality, my history, my proclivities, my likes, my dislikes, my political viewpoints, my everything, all coming into it. This is the larger sort of objective discourse saying this thing. I don't think that's necessarily a totally new thing as far as 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 music criticism, though. I mean, I think that's, that's, that's... just something that's always been baked into music criticism. I think, you know, many of the most successful uh, music critics are those who deliberately have bucked that orthodoxy. Um, from 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 Lester Bangs to 
whoever, you know, um, just someone like, like Philip Sherburn, um, people who have, you know, uh, who, who go out on a limb and, uh, and say things with, with, with like personality. Um, I, I think the norm long has been kind of anonymous tone. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I do think that historically music journalism slash criticism slash whatever you want to call it has been driven more by individual personalities than necessarily the outlets that they're writing for. And I agree with Chris that things have shifted a lot in the past couple of years towards a, an environment where individual writers or critics matter a lot less than the outlet that they're writing. For. Yeah, no, I wouldn't disagree with that. I wouldn't disagree with yeah. that at all. And I think, I think, what, what I think about when I was growing up, when I was discovering music, when I was learning about music, I think about um, the character and the, and the personality of not just the music writers that I was reading, but more about like the record labels and the scenes. That was the shit that changed my life. And to me, that's what I miss the most about the environment that I grew up in is having outlets for and a space for personalities or scenes or labels to really coalesce and present. Okay. But now, now, I mean, now, now you're getting on like, like very kind of systemic wide shifts that I think. Well, are, sure. You know, the, the, that that goes do. far beyond like the way that music criticism itself has shifted, which I think we should, uh, we well, should remain focused on for, for at least this, this chunk. Cause you're, you're I mean, you're, yeah. you're, you're touching on, Certainly, I think all all three of us are from an era when music had a very different social function, and right. um, you know something that we built our whole lives and identities around, and that has changed fundamentally. That's a, that's a very big conversation. I, th- I think we should we should try to stay but focused. I think, I think that's a conversation we should get into because uh, yeah. again, that's a overriding thesis for the whole okay. reason okay. for this show mm-hmm. is because exactly. and they all kind of tie together. They they're not unrelated for sure. Um, but I, I think there's just still more we can explore within the way that criticism itself has changed. Well, here's, um, here's, okay, here, here's, here's, here's a thought. I think that the atomization of music listening culture and music fans has led to this increase in uh, this sort of overwhelming authority of the publication or of the outlet as, for instance, Pitchfork, RA, whoever. Because as scenes and subcultures and communities have fallen by the wayside in music people turn to these outlets to basically yeah like they they, they turn to kind of yeah. the, the 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 obvious perceived authorities um right. in lieu of like having an actual social relationship to, <laughs> right. to like like, like a, a physical a physical place in time and you know yeah yeah um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think that's absolutely a factor so i think they're all tied together i mean like, like i think they're all kind of different facets of the same picture that we're looking at. Like, yeah, no, I, I, I wouldn't disagree, but I think, I think just like there's a lot to explore within, in, in, I think like I, I have a, a very poorly sketched out and, uh, uh, you know, kind of not very developed kind of lingering thesis in the back of my head that we've, we've exited the age of the critic and we're in, in the age of the curator. Yeah, that's, and, that's true. And, that's true. uh, so yeah, like, you know, I think the nineties and two thousands were the eighties, nineties, and some of the 2000s were very much defined by the role of the critic. The critic was the person who, who parsed through lots of media and because of their authority, because they knew a lot about a thing, that what they said had, uh, had, you know, had cultural merit. Um, and uh, they, could shape, uh, they could shape the broader discourses as well as also kind of shape, um, shape the, the, the aesthetic development of individual artists and scenes. Well, that's a really interesting, interesting topic as relates to music journalism in that, in my opinion, music journalists or music publications now serve as curators as opposed to critics. I mean, that's... Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, RA's primary role is like running stages at large music festivals. (laughs) Right, right. Um, There is no sort of, I mean, when did you read a critical review in the past, you know? Every every once in a while, they sort of perfunctorily toss out something that's a little uh, like contrarianly edgy. It's uh, not contrarian. It's it's the one that they know they're not going to like that people are going to be like, oh, yeah, this is like this shit on the drum code record. Right. Exactly. The the opposite of contrarian. Right. right. Exactly. (laughs) It's like they know that they can shit on this record and it'll be fine. Right. They're they're insulated from 
let me take the devil's advocate position here for a second, which is in a world where we are in the present moment, we are inundated with media of all kinds at a level literally heretofore untold. Like yeah, absolutely. the amount of music and art and any kind of cultural product that we're constantly bombarded with is, in my experience, utterly overwhelming. And so in this kind of environment, how do we exist? How do we how do we make the choice of what to consume and what not to consume? Well, again, that's that, that's 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 part of why I think like the role of the critic has shifted to the role of the curator. Um, so is that necessarily a problem or is that a good thing? I, I wouldn't say it's 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 a thing. There are there are there are there are sort of positive things about it. There are sort of negative things about it. There are. Uh, but it's also it's it's also a, a, like a necessary function, right? Like this yeah, is this right, is this right. is a thing that happened because it had to. Exactly. Exactly. I think the one slight turn in that change is kind of goes back to what we were talking about with criticism, which is that the role of the critic inherently has a personality at- attached to it, whereas the role yeah. of the curator is inherently. Mm. Unper- impersonal. Oh, I, actually, I, I would really disagree. I think I think the curator, uh, the curator has a lot of personality. Um, really, I think the curator presents these things with um, uh, a sort of judgment neutral, kind of neutral, positive slant, right? So the, the curator oh. is something that just this is stuff, and right. through the nature of my presenting this, I bring value, meaning, and context to it. Um, huh. They. They do not provide any kind of uh, guidance beyond that. Um, so it's presented in this new, neutral fashion. But uh, in the act of presentation, um, uh, the, the curator transforms, um, how to put it? Uh, I, I, I think the, 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 curator, the, curator is, the curator is a representation of its, of its brand, right? Sure. Um, I think the curator's sole goal is to reinforce its own brand, whereas the right. critic, the critic, had a much broader cultural function. I think it's kind of true what Chris was saying, though, because I feel like the critic come, or I mean, excuse me, the curator acts from a position of authority by necessity, but the critic goes even beyond that and is like, I'm not only coming from a place of authority i'm 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 coming from a place of personality i i want to tell you how i responded to a specific artwork and i think that kind of discourse or exchange is really missing in right right like 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 a a a tangible personal connection Um, exactly exactly well to me it's the difference between going to a museum and reading a essay about a piece of art you know, you, you go to a museum and you go to some exhibit that's ostensibly been curated by someone and you see all of this art and you get the sense that, okay, well, someone who uh, has some authority knows better here, than me, right? knows better than me, chose all this stuff and put it out. And so it's there. Okay, that's great. And then, um, but that's kind of it. it. It's just there. And you're kind of assuming that all of this stuff is has importance or some sort of deeper significance attached to it because it's in front of you. Whereas if you're reading an essay or something about a work of art, it's one person telling you, this is what I think, this is, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, well, I think I, but... And I think that uh, that necessarily, I think that role of talking about something, I mean, granted, there's a lot of essays about art that are completely... Let's not, let's not let's not diminish the actual sensory experience of of like like enjoying and exp- and just uh, just experiencing art like well yeah that that's a that, that's a real thing well it's ostensibly um, why we're all happy well adjusted individuals <laughs> yeah <laughs> no but I think you're onto something Chris in that there's there's been that diffusion of personality of individual. Uh, reaction in the way that we talk about a lot of art and music. And I know even in my own, even in my own uh, practice as a music journalist, a lot of outlets that I have written for have discouraged me from 
writing from a from a personal perspective first and foremost sure that's yeah that's not surprising yeah yeah i mean i've been i've been asked by a multitude of editors to sort of write myself out of of what i'm writing about right which to me is hard because i you know that's just kind of how i write and how i think about art is from a very visceral place i mean to me that sort of speaks to a larger and more dominant cultural mode at the time, which is that everybody's a fucking expert. And because you have Twitter and YouTube in front of you, you know, and therefore my opinions actually, okay, I didn't know anything about, uh, you know, Syrian music, uh, you know, uh, yesterday, but I have uh, gone onto YouTube and I have typed uh, Syrian music and two hours later, I'm an expert. I mean, I guess this does this touch on on I, I think one broader issue that I I think we would kind of like to cover on the show in general is like um kind of a critique of of the democratization of access that digital media has uh, kind of engendered. Um, well, and what do you I, mean, Sean? Just that, like like that? I I what I mean is that um, now everyone has access to everything, so everyone ah. is an expert. And again, this ah, t- yes. this this ties into. This ties into, I think, kind of the death of the critic is why the critic no longer performs a necessary social role, cultural role, when everyone just can go and hear them, whatever music or experience, whatever art or see whatever movie themselves for free and make their own decisions. Well, I think what's happened is a it's a turn from I don't I I it's a turn from. Um, I, I know about this thing and I have digested this information and lived with it to now. I think it's a sort of false democratization of, uh, information where no longer do people know things, but they know where to find them. So I know where to look. And I saw it once for a list of the top, uh, you know, um, you know, Syrian, uh, LPs of the past 20 years. So I know where that is. So I can speak to it. Right. I can speak about it because I know where to find it. I have not sure. I have not identified I have not like fully digested this. I have I you know, I did a cursory glance on YouTube and I've heard but, of this and I understand is, the signifier, but I don't I don't you know, it's not like part of me, but because I know that it exists and I know where it is, I the brain becomes less you can claim it. Yeah, the brain becomes yeah, exactly. Like you become less of someone who like knows things and have internalized things to you just become a sort of collection of hyperlinks. Your brain is just a bunch of links to like Wikipedia pages <laughs> yeah, 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 about totally. these things that oh, man. you're like, oh, okay, like that's there. I can recall that in the future if I need to, but I don't need to actually like, I don't need make to make any connections myself. Yeah. I don't need to actually live with this information. I know it's sure. out there. And so if I need it later, I can, I can retrieve it. So let me ask you to a question when you when you love like an album, like a great album, how do you listen to it? How do you digest? What's what's your listening process? What what changes? How do you how do you digest a record that you really like that you really enjoy? I mean, presumably you just listen to it over and over and over again. (laughs) But is there anything more than that? Do you do it? Do you do you look into the 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 context in which it was made? Do you look up? Oh the yeah, I mean, of, of course, well, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm a nerd, so I probably have done that before I even listened to the album. So yeah, I mean, we're all nerds, right? So we all sit there and right, right. And what gear did they use? Uh, yeah, that's uh, kind of what we're talking about. They, I think you you know this think, does this does segue I think very perfectly into the next segment where we talk about a very important record. Yeah, should we should we go there? I, I mean, CZ, you seem to be on a on a on a yeah. Well, sorry, no, no, not, trail not, not to derail you. No, that's fine. I ju- I just think it's I just think it's interesting to think about. I feel like whether consciously or not, people's listening habits aren't what they used to be because, and I guess this sort of ties back to the thing that I was talking about, just about total inundation. Is people don't really have the time or the bandwidth or the attention span to really dig into pieces of art that they enjoy, I think. Yeah, yeah. As a general rule. 
Right. I have like this album. I know I should listen to it. And okay, well, I'm here. I'm coding um, because that's what I do. Um, and at my cool tech job, like I can code and listen to music. So, okay, I'm going to do my job and I'm going to put on this music and listen to it. And okay, I've listened to it. You know, it, it's there. It, it, it passed uh, through my, um, you know, it passed through my periphery. And if I want to return to it, um, I can return to it later. It's on Spotify. It's on YouTube. It's somewhere. Um, exactly. It, and I think kind of what I was saying keep... is it like the inability to like, you know, because a, I don't think this necessarily means that someone needs to spend money and buy a physical record and, you know, put their money towards a, you know, the music industry to like actually have a relationship with that record. I, I, I sort of disagree with that notion entirely. Um, but I also, yeah, I mean, I think that it tends to be, we live in a time where Mark Fisher wrote really well about this. We, we live in a time where we, we sort of feel like we need to be doing something all the time. He, he, he gave this yeah. anecdote of someone, um, in class in one of his classes who had earbuds in and, um, he was like, you know, what, what why do you have earbuds in? And the student said, well, I mean, I'm not listening to anything, but like the idea that I could be, is really important to me because I, you know, I like my, my attention span, like I need like these oh, things great. to be moving, Yeah, you know? Um, and I feel like we feel that. I mean, generally we live in neoliberal hell right now. We all have multiple jobs, no security. Um, you know, we feel this sort of any moment of sitting back and enjoying ourselves um, tends to feel like wasted time. Yeah, absolutely. Because... That's time we could have been productive. Not could have, should have. Right. There is always that uh, that kind of uh, self-punitive, looming judgment. I should yeah. have done this. I should have worked harder. I could have. And I think I think I'd a lot of the curatorial functions of music journalist outlets and music publications serve as a sort of very convenient stand-in for a lot of the quote-unquote work that nerds like you and I used to do which is you know if you if you're a music if you're a music listener and you know that something has been vetted by Pitchfork, RA, Red Bull or whatever then you know that's that's nice that means like okay all right I'm on the right track to, yeah yeah right exactly I'm on the right track I'm doing the right thing and I think that impulse has sort of seeped into music culture writ large. But again, like I, 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 I don't think you know it's it, it's not the media outlets themselves that are, that that are that are at blame. I think you know uh, again, I think like at, at at root, well, there 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 are many kind of root causes here, but um, just steer things back again towards this kind of um, you know, the, I, I think one of the main issues is is the fact that is is the, the, this kind of extreme democratization that everyone can have immediate access to any piece of information they want at right. any time. So what then right. is the value of knowing anything? Exactly, exactly. There's no need to kind of deeply understand, deeply digest, or, or even have a terribly profound personal connection to any piece of knowledge, any, any kind of, um, any kind of uh, you know, any kind of sets of knowledge when, when, yeah, like, you know, Joe Schmo down the street could also Google, you know, uh, new beat classics and be, be, be an expert on, uh, you know, <laughs> on, on, on the, the grand tradition of Belgium in, uh, in an yeah, hour and a half. That's, so. that's definitely what, what all of Generation Z is doing, is Googling movie classics. <laughs> they should be. Um, yeah, damn right they should be. And that's why we're here. <laughs> but the thing that I specifically do not want this conversation to reinforce is the idea that listening habits are changed because a generation has changed uh, qualitatively. Uh, yes, yes. Um, what I want, and, you know, that, and I do not want it to seem that, well, well, we're the authorities. We, we know better. We know what people should be listening to, blah, blah, blah. I think the thing that we're really lamenting here is not that people are listening to the wrong things, but that people are not, that the sort of great and vibrant tapestry of people's likes, of what people, what really gets people off, um, is collapsing into a sort of 
faded and very monochrome um, thing. Uh, sure. Well, pe- pe- I think people's tastes are more diverse than ever, but for sure their canons are, are, are narrower and narrower. Yeah, yeah, that's, that, 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 that's a good point. The, the swath is much more broad than it yeah. ever has been. I mean, how many people do you know who are like, like, like oh, I'm, I, I'm, I'm an expert on like, like industrial music, techno, drum and bass, and whatever, eh? like, like on and on and on and on. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it just seems to me but, like... But, but they just know that like the 15 kind of touch points of like 15 cornerstones of each genre. Right. Um, Music listeners taste writ large has become much broader than it used to be and much more shallow than it used to be. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I think the great thing about humans, the great thing about our interest in art, the great thing about us is that we have very bizarre idiosyncratic uh likes and dislikes um you just think not, about it. not me not me happy hardcore is is, is unimpeachably great <laughs> well yeah but just think about people's individual politics um the way in which um you talk to anyone about politics and they have a labyrinthine and almost completely alien uh political like array of political beliefs um there are people who right like very very like self-contradictory with kind of no exactly but and just bizarre (laughs) and they all have like one really weird thing that they believe in you know they have you know like oh and you know you're talking to anti-vaxxers yeah exactly or you'll be talking to someone and it's like oh yeah you know like um, you know, I don't know about Medicare for all, you know, but I'm like a centrist Democrat, but also like lizard people exist. You know, like people have incredible, when you talk to someone one on one and really get into them, you discover a really strange and delightful world of, as Sean said, contradictory beliefs, a very bizarre political convictions held very deeply. Um, and in our political sphere, that's something that sort of necessarily collapses into a sort of party structure, one in which we find uh, pretty stifling. Um, but I think it's the same in music. People have bizarre things that they like and dislike. And in music, it sort of all gets boiled down to this very perfunctory like thing of, well, you know, like, the most expensive uh, Italo record on Discogs is this one, and that's the best one. And so those top 15 you like. And, oh, you like this Italo record, the one that's like... On that note, just, just yesterday I was talking about... Uh, I was talk- Katie and I were talking about the band Yellow, a uh, personal favorite. And I was reminded of a comment from a friend. This, is, this goes back many years now. Um, a, a good friend of mine said uh, that... And this this was as uh, you know as as the label Minimal Wave got pretty popular, <clears throat> and Dusting the the band Dusting was playing um, you know their first show in America ever, uh, his first show in America ever, and my friend remarked you know amongst a certain circle, um, more people know the band Dusting than they know than 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 know DAF, and that's I mean that's insane. But yeah, he wasn't wrong, and I think that, that that's 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 become truer and truer. That like yeah. these kind of like these kind of arbitrary, very inaccurate histories uh, get get increasingly amplified. Well, um, and if that was Dusting's first live show in the U.S., that was probably what thirty-five years after he wrote that record or something like that. I don't know. Thirty, give or take. Yeah. 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 Um, so I mean, that, you know, I mean, no, no, no hate on Dusting. His music is absolutely great and absolutely deserving to have been you know, uh, re re-earthed and, uh, and rediscovered and, and, and popularized. But, you know, you're talking about DF is, 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 is canon. DF like shaped the course of, of music to come for 35 years, like, like on right. a, on a profound level there, there, there is, there is, there is, you know, music of a certain stream before DAF and after. And that, that, Absolutely. that is, that is an extreme, uh, that is an extreme shift. And, um, for then these, you know, these kind of like historically speaking kind of curiosities and kind of like a kind of fringe novelty acts to get amplified to that same level is, is weird. I think, I think the whole minimal wave revival, which you were a 
key part of Sean is I'm 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 not saying key you're part maybe maybe <laughs> maybe give me a little <laughs> much credit uh, certainly an active active participant in as a sure yeah but I think I think that whole party. scene and that revival was a really interesting early glimpse at the way that the internet has changed music listening habits and music consumption. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, because I don't think that minimal wave revival, when did it start? Let's say 2008 ish. Um, something like that. Well, uh, I mean, it, 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 this, this starts getting into like, you know, kind of contentious histories, micro histories. So say, let's just say 2008, because that sounds about right to me. I don't think two, that 2008 was, was probably the kind of uh, the the ascension of the weird party and and yeah, the kind yeah, of yeah um, yeah yeah so yeah I don't think this that scene or that revival could have happened even five years earlier yeah you know what I mean? yeah I mean you're not wrong you're not you know wrong I, mean? um, I, I think I, I mean, yeah I mean, there's a lot of reasons for that but yeah I mean you're not you're absolutely not wrong there um, yeah I'm just saying I'm just saying that that it was a really interesting portrait or uh, sort of well again example it, I, I I think that action. That, that that ties to what I think of as as the death of the critic and the rise of the curator, where you do have then then the people who are are kind of um, the central figures of of kind of shaping music discourse, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. become the a, become label heads. They become yeah. promoters. They become yeah. uh, you know um, well, mostly label heads and promoters, really, uh, rather than you know the the kind of artists and critics themselves. Um, yeah. And I mean that, that that's an interesting that's a that's a very interesting kind of example in action of the mechanism that you that you're talking about, such that for instance a band like Neon Judgment or Dusting or whoever becomes more well regarded amongst a certain scene than for instance DAF, who are the bands. Yeah, yeah, or yeah, with, like Front Two Four Two, like yeah, the kids don't care about Front Two Four Two. Like you right. kidding me? Sorry. Well, there's a certain there's a certain young German YouTube contingent that really cares about VNV Nation, and they dance a lot to it. They have great dance videos. If you're the guy who dances to those props, yeah, Mad I mean, props. you're welcome on the show anytime. Though, though there was some video that he did, there was some video that he did which then turned to like hip hop, and that was in very bad taste. It's like a you know pasty northern German guy, like mm, you know, it's kind of. I think there's nothing funnier that that you know. A few years ago, a friend told me like the hottest party in Berlin is this this new at the time new party called Burgers and Hip Hop, and I was like, "Oh come on, there's two things the Germans couldn't do worse." <laughs> Sorry. No, it's cool. Germany. We're coming for you. <laughs> this is the Germany Takedown podcast. So there was an interesting quote in the recently published interview with the Wizard. Jeff Mills. I still haven't read, and obviously we all should have. I read it. Well, uh, Sounds like CZ read it, too. I, uh, we all meaning me. You fucked up, Sean. You fucked up big time. <laughs> so this interview, he there's a very telling quote in there where I forget how it comes about. Will Lynch is asking. I think he asked him about. They're just talking about DJ culture, and Jeff says something to the effect of um, that he's been sort of disheartened by the way that DJ culture has been represented in a lot of media in that uh, he, in, in his opinion, he doesn't feel that much of what's being covered in the electronic music media is worthy of coverage. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I did read that. Yeah, that, that was a big poll quote from yeah. him. Here's Jeff's quote. I think media plays a big part in making the standards of electronic music too low because they talk too much about people who haven't done too much. That is my professional opinion as a DJ and an artist. I think that we should only speak about people that clearly have done something special. That's, and then he goes on to say, then it raises the value of everything and everyone remains at their level until they do something special. That's, yeah, I mean, it's fair. And I mean, that's, that's one thing I've noticed in my discussions with people who are, 10 years or more younger than I am is a lot of them lament or, or grouse is a better word. They grouse about the existence of gatekeepers in, yes. in just the as gatekeeper, a phenomenon. The gatekeeper, the gatekeeper that, 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 that ever shifting, ever, ever self redefining nebulous force. Exactly. The gatekeeper the gate is anything, anything All in whatever that, that, that deprives you of access to whatever you want Indeed. at this exact Indeed. moment. Is horrible. Um, is enemy. Well, 
Yeah, the, the 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 gatekeeper is definitely one of my personal bugbears because I, you know, on one hand, like we can all kind of celebrate the death of, uh, you know, the kind of curmudgeonly record store clerk who, you know, record store guy. Yeah, yeah like like Comic yeah like like guy. yeah like like normally a a uh, mid thirties white guy with a lot of knowledge and a lot of hate. Hey, I'm describing myself. But, uh, you know, um, this is a time for introspection. <laughs> but, you know, like, uh, I'm going to like, Joe Rogan with this. I'll give you some DMT. You'll have like ego death and we'll really finally get to the core. I've had enough ego death. Um, yeah, no. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, yeah, like, like on one hand, like, yeah, it's great that like, you know, like, like annoying white guys who think they know a lot about stuff and, and, you know, kind of, um. Uh, you know, exercise this weird kind of non-power in kind of abusive or uh, destructive ways. Like, yeah, of course, that's great. That's great that, that these institutions have kind of died out. But, um, you know, at the same time, like, you know, music cultures have existed because of boundaries forever. Yeah, exa exactly. Precisely. So, Precisely. I think we lose, we lose so much when we start to suppose the fact that everything is exactly the same. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't want this to be like lamenting the word gatekeeper because Sean, you and I work in like a synthesizer store. We know how gatekeeping works. We know right. these people. I mean, we know the kind of people who talk down, especially to like young women, young whoever, yeah, but primarily, you know, young women, um, you know, sort of insulting their intelligence and sort of being like, well, you can't do this. So why don't you let, you know, right. You couldn't possibly understand this. Why like the big boys take over, you know, I mean, yeah. this is something that's rampant in the synth community. This is something oh, that's rampant in the electronic music community more widely and something that's absolutely huge in music media and basically everything. And so I really want to, um, put down a flag and say, gatekeepers, um, no fucking time for them because there is, it's generally just a manifestation of a midlife crisis for some asshole. Well, no, no, I, sure. I'm, I'm going through midlife crisis, so let's not talk shit on midlife crises. Okay. <laughs> sure. Um, okay. I, but, I mean, I completely, I, I agree with you. Completely, yeah. Chris. I just, I, yeah. I want to yeah. make sure that that no, no, flag no. is planted yeah. and then let's, to, let's, let, 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 you know, I, I listen, I, the problem is misogyny here, okay? The problem is structural misogyny. It, like, I, I take issue with the way that the word gatekeeper has been twisted and abused and distorted to mean whatever it wants to mean, whatever the, the, the user of the term wants it to mean, given whatever context. Sure. So, like, like, like that, that, that I think is, is, is a problem. Misogyny is a much bigger problem, a much more serious cultural problem, and yes, that needs to be stomped out at all costs. Yeah. Um, but, right, and I think but, there's kind of a conflation of the phenomenon of gatekeeping, which I am air quoting right now, with this kind of structural misogyny. Absolutely, yes, I totally agree. Lines of isms, and I think, and I think we are losing a lot by conflating or whatever. Like we're just losing a lot by ignoring how powerful and how important it can be to define boundaries. I, I totally and, agreed. Yeah. Right. Sure. And I think w one of the most intelligent and thoughtful and impassioned defenses of gatekeeping, I'm air quoting once again, as a phenomenon comes from Terry Temlitz, who on their website, they go into great detail as to why they take great pains to make their music unavailable on streaming services, on YouTube, on easily accessible digital right. platforms because in their view the critical context of their music which is for instance coming from a trans you know queer vogue world of right 90s manhattan that context gets completely erased and flattened when it's promulgated so easily on a digital platform sure. and 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 for them that context is crucial to the listener's experience of their music and i think that's a really interesting really interesting um argument in to to sort of explain why gatekeeping can be a very important thing 
Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, totally agreed. Um, again, like, like cultures have boundaries. Um, right. They're, 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 uh, any culture is defined by what is not acceptable within that culture as much as what is. True. Uh, w- w- what is allowed in. So, right. uh, you know, um, I, I, I don't think it's a destructive act of gatekeeping necessarily when, you know. I don't either. When, yeah, uh, I don't either. When, I think it's an act when something isn't good or isn't of part definition. of a culture. Um, yes. And again, like, uh, you know, uh, I think one of the one of the kind of broader underlying issues here is that, um, you know, with the kind of um, with the, the, the extreme democratization, but also the, the collapse of, uh, of the, the geographic specificity and temporal specificity of musical scenes. Indeed. Um, you know, uh, cultures do not exist the same way they used to. They, they, they exist in this kind of atemporal right. permanence. Um, a miasma as opposed to a landmass. Yeah. Or, or yeah, like a, a, or yeah, like a, a shooting star to yeah. quote, quote my other favorite bang song. You're a shooting star across the midnight sky. Wherever you are, you're going <laughs> to see me fly like, like a shooting star across the midnight sky. Wherever you are, you're going to see me fly. Yeah. I mean, okay. St- so we're definitely going to have the Sean Dutch karaoke. <laughs> The Happy Hardcore episode is going to be fucking amazing. (laughs) Um, And I think this conversation that we've just been having speaks to a great deal about what I think I and I think what we all want to accomplish with this podcast is to bring is to sort of just highlight how it how good it can be to have boundaries and to have definitions and to have metatextual understandings of artworks. So the records we're going to talk about today are Waveform Transmission Volume 1 and 3 by Jeff Mills. Um, I, I think Waveform, I think these two albums are incredibly important, A, because, look, we're, we're starting a podcast, we are talking about electronic music, we're talking about it through the lens of techno. Um, this is Mills. These are two of his early major statements. Um, there is no icon in techno like Mills. There is no person who I believe embodies the spirit of techno, at least the spirit that drew, drew me to techno in the way that Mills does. Um, there is, and these records take place, um, in the case of the first, I believe he was still with you are. In the case I, th- of- I think Waveform Transition uh, Volume One was recorded right after he left. You are okay, and in and in Volume Three, it's 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 firmly you know, after. Yeah, definitely after he left. You are no. To, to, to my knowledge, Volume One is recorded in New York after he like like while he was doing residency at the Limelight, like yeah. right after you are basically. So I think these two records lay out an incredibly interesting vision of techno. Um, one which is tied to the early 90s. Uh, It's hard to listen to these records, and you know that these are from the early 90s, Um, especially in the case of some tracks on Waveform Transmission Volume 1. They speak directly to their time. Um, How so? How so? Well, I mean, so... You're going to hate on Changes of Life I'm going to hate on Changes of Life again. I mean, I'm not hating on Changes (laughs) of Life. It's a great track. Changes of Life is a great track, and and it's... quintessentially um it's a quintessentially sort of 90 early 90s rave track um but changes of life uh you know so to me as someone who was uh two when waveform transmission volume one came out um that's crazy dude i know should i be talking about this (laughs) do i even (laughs) yeah yeah I mean, it, it, it's just a track that, uh, for me, listening to it, um, because I grew up after this period, um, I know of changes of life. I, it, it is full of sort of rave signifiers that 
were then distributed to me through movies, through everything when I was younger. And so by the time I was at the point of actually intentionally buying a Jeff Mills record and listening to it, I had already had a lot of the rave stab sort of thing in my brain um, and in a way that was not, I mean, that's just generally not what I'm looking for in music. I, you know, I'm buying a Jeff Mills record because I, you know, want to hear, you know, weird music. And so to hear something that is very much of its time um, and containing all of these things that I associate with this pianos, you got, you got shit against pianos. Just I don't have, say it. I don't just have say anything it. Just against say it. Come pianos. Come out with it. Come out with it. But you Chris, hate pianos. Why, I'm the why, one. Why hold up. <laughs> I need to, because I'm the one who said we should have Peter Dow on the show. Okay, I'm the one who's been pushing to have you know the great pianist of New Groove Records on the show. Um, now that he's taken a turn for the left, and uh, so it's not a piano thing. Anyway, CZ, Chris, why do you feel like these records are indicative of the '90s? Um, I don't think I don't I don't think they are at it as a whole indicative of the 90s. I think something like Changes of Life most certainly is indicative of the 90s. However, I think a track like The Hacker, which is a track when I first heard it, um, changed me in a particular way. I think that is a vision of a future that has not yet come to pass. A track like The Hacker is something that I think um, is, it's Mills going harder than he did in his previous incarnations. It's, he, it's certainly like a step harder than uh, than like X-103. Exactly. I mean, it's harder than those earlier records, um, and it's harder than anything he ends up doing after. Um but it's a hardness that I do not think, it's a hardness that to me approaches the sort of futuristic and sci-fi thing that he starts to explore later in Axis. Um, it's a hard, the record is hard. The it, hacker. It, it does feel truly alien for sure. Yeah. It, it feels, it feels, uh, it feels inhuman, I guess. Yeah. Is, uh, and it starts to explore a space in a very sort of brutal way that I think Mills then hits his stride. Because for me, Prime Mills is Axis. Um, the run of records he does on Axis, and I think Mills is still putting out incredible music, so the run of records he, 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 he continues to this day, um, the sort of Mills sound that he settles into in the late 90s of this sort of sci-fi, kind of bizarre, very futuristic, lots of TG3, uh, TG33, um, you know, sort of digital sounds and things. Um, that sound comes to define Mills. And so these two records, I think, are stand as like this early Mills that is not the Jeff Mills that we all know and love quite yet. Um, it is a Mills, it is in that sort of you are early, it's still in that, it's still too early for it to be the Mills of Axis Records. Um, but I think a track like The Hacker um, and... Many threads in, in some of the other tracks. I mean, this the Waveform Transmission Volume 1 goes so hard um, that I think, it, you know, it, it's a thing that Mills starts to pull back on um, later. He's not overdriving Mackie mixers in the way. That, I mean, he, he pulls back pretty fast, really, yeah. like after, after these two records. Uh, other than, than Step to Enchantment, um, right. the, the, the entirety of really the Axis catalog is, is you know, uh, pretty, pretty flawless from pretty, a like pretty tame well uh, and 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 it's not in terms of that intensity um yeah and in engineering terms it's it's very well made it's cleaner yeah yeah for sure um, i mean this th this is an interesting conversation for me because i don't have the connection to mills's music that you that you two have i never grew up listening to mills i kind of bypassed mills so everything i know about mills i i know uh received I you didn't should, experience you should, it growing up. Like seriously, I think spend a few days with well, Waveform uh, Volume One and Three. 
I mean, another. Yeah, um, I've. I've it, it, it's it's worth like it. I think. Transitory. It, listen, <clears throat> I think it really does start explaining a lot about the history of techno. Um, yeah, volume one and three really. Uh, you will see so many kind of tropes that later became whole genres on their own uh, being right. sketched I mean, out I, right right there in, in real time, basically. I think what's interesting for me, again, as someone who hasn't really historically spent a lot of time with Mill's music, is to me, these two records sound like um, like access points, not to not to make the obvious pun. But but when 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 I think about the Detroit sound of like the late 80s, the early 90s, it's a lot more melodic. It's a lot necessary. It's 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 a lot slower. It's a lot less intense. And then these records from Mills are just brutalist, just, just intense, visceral. And that to me, it, it just seems like a, like, like a real important shift in the way that techno developed as a genre and a sound. I think, I think, uh, I, I totally agree. Uh, waveform volume one is, is a colossal break from the Detroit tradition that existed prior to it. Um, I think, uh, this record along with um uh along with the mover um were the two kind of uh key breaks that were that were to lay the groundwork for the for the rest of the 90s ultimately um for the for the shape of techno to come for yeah for ultimately the next 30 years um yeah and i think you can see that in multiple strands and especially in a track like solid sleep on waveform transmission volume 3 That is, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, I mean, that, that, that sets up the whole genre of music that I still just kind of gravitate towards. Solid Sleep is that sort of, I mean, in the context of these records, it's incredibly slow, but it's, you know, your sort of typical like 130 BPM, you know, whatever. And, you know, in the context of these things, it's, you know, glacial but it you know is a sort of uh mid-paced um track it has a sort of um you know it has a sort of offbeat hi-hats um and it has those sort of dubby chords that build and collapse and that is a the tradition of techno that flows from that single track um i mean that's the entire genre uh i mean it it sort of encapsulates the entirety of techno that we still listen to a lot of it stems yeah. from that single track i mean i think i think like 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 again also like the, w- these two records and the, i would say the first uh i first 10 give or take records on axis you you can see him sketching out i mean every single track is a statement every single track is a a not just a trope but in t- at times a whole genre that is being uh, created right in front of you. Um, things that we are still, still regurgitating, still processing, still, still, uh, you know, drawing inspiration from Yeah, 30 years later, almost. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think these two records and yeah, the, the early access catalog, they sketch out techno. Um, and then honestly, I think the only other people that need to fill in the gaps are maybe Rob Hood and, um, and probably basic channel, um, both of whom we will get to on their own time. I think I, th- I, I would put put the like the early Sako records in there too. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, you know, I mean, this kind of sets up techno 
to the present day. Um, and I mean, another, so an, another reason why I really wanted to talk about these records, Mills in particular, um, you are in particular is because of the politics in their music. Um, I have often tweeted, um, and I have often tweeted should maybe be a statement banned from the show. <laughs> <laughs> I have often said, <laughs> um, Much or I, I, I have lamented the, the sort of lack of techno's roots, and I have always traced it back to a sort of um, working class um, and primarily black um, expression that comes out of Detroit. And um, what I tend to get a lot of times is a sort of, well, what are you talking about? The Belleville Three were not working class, you know, Juan Atkins and Derek May and Kevin Saunderson were very middle class. They went to high school in the suburbs. And this has been, you know, to sort of be like, you know, I know more about techno than you. And, you know, it's techno's roots aren't working class. But for me, the roots that I don't give a shit. I'm sorry. I don't give a shit about Derek May and Kevin Saunderson. I care about Juan Atkins because his music is amazing. But the lineage of techno that I that resonated with me and that I really believe is the sort of, um, the true spirit, so to speak, the true spirit to crib from Trezor, uh, liner notes. Um, the true spirit of techno is caught in Mills and you are, and in their political mission and Mills and, and Mike Banks were very clear in their political mission, which was that, they had, there was a sound of techno that was this middle-class sound, and they wanted to bring it back to a sort of uh, a more militantly working-class sound. I mean, you cannot talk about UR without politics. They, politics suffuses the whole thing. Mad Mike is still incredibly political. Mills, less so. But I think that their music is incredibly instructive for today's age because with Mills... Um, and Mad Mike, Mad Mike has a sort of more, um, to me at least, Mad Mike presents a more sort of, um, a view of the present and the issues with the present. Um, whereas Mills sort of casts his gaze further into the future and Mills allows himself and, and Mad Mike comes with him. They imagine themselves to, they let themselves imagine a future of music. Um, and I think often about Mills's CD, and this could have also been the thing that we talk about in this episode, Live at the Liquid Room, um, which, you know, has that amazing cover of this space station with people dancing in it. Um, and that mix CD, pretty much up with the Waveform Transmissions album, to me is a absolute cornerstone of techno, a defining if anyone wants to know what techno is, this is the thing I would probably give them. Um, but to me, it, it's so much more than just the sound itself. It is the sort of vision behind it. I mean, these are people who grow up in Detroit surrounded by all sorts of shit, um, mostly from deindustrialization and the loss of basically declining wages, the loss of any decent quality of life and the you know, the sort of 80s neoliberal turn leaving entire swaths of the country behind. Um, these are people who also at that time growing up in that context grow up with comic books and sci-fi and start to imagine a future that is better. Um, and to me, this is the core of techno. Mills has been very just sort of I mean, he has always had this futurist edge to him, and he has always thought about the future in a sort of, in a way that can be cute and kind of amusing, because, oh, you know, well, Mills, he's an alien, you know, like, we all, we all know that. I mean, he, he verges on kitsch, for sure. But. Sure. <clears throat> but he, I think he knowingly verges on kitsch, because the yeah. future doesn't necessarily have to be... The kitsch is, is is still a political weapon. So. Exactly, the future we all want to live in doesn't have to be cutting edge. 
you know? The future we all want to live in, it's fine if it's a bit kitschy because at the end of the day, you know... Uh, well, well I, 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 I don't think any kind of... I don't think utopianism of any sort needs to be so prescriptive regardless, you know? Uh, he's, he's, not, right. he's not laying out a clear vision for the future. He's, uh, exactly. He's, he's uh, laying out any vision for the future. <laughs> right. But I think it's <laughs> Which one that... At, he, at this juncture, any future is pretty radical, so... Exactly. I mean, that's a, that, I mean this comes back to Mark Fisher and, 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 and things we will talk about increasingly on the show, the idea that, you know, there is no future. And to have techno as a movement that explicitly tried to imagine a future, tried to imagine a future... Um, where basically everything was open to everyone um, feels at this moment incredibly radical. And I think it's something that we as people who enjoy techno have completely lost. Um, There is no future in techno today. Uh, And I think the reason for these records, the reason for Mills, the reason for UR as being the important sort of... um, I don't know, lighthouses or the important sort of standard bearers of techno is because they were unafraid to imagine a future that was radically different. And in our current context, that is, to my estimation, the most radical um, act that can happen in techno. To imagine a future that is wildly different from the one that we that we live in. You to mean. allow yourself to even... To yeah. allow yourself to even open your imagination to that possibility, because right. no one is doing it. I guess I'm intrigued because I totally understand what you're saying, but for me, music that has always felt like the future to me has been drum and bass and jungle. That's the music that I that I turn to when I think of the future. Um, That's because you're from the '90s, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, I, I, true. I I think I think you're right. I mean, I think you know so much of that. Panacea Tron, it still sounds like the future. Yeah, I mean, there's yeah. there's so much of that jungle and there's so much of that jungle, uh, that early sort of jungle environment, 94 to 96 or whatever, that yeah. sounds like the future and I think was made in a very similar context yes. to the music of Mills right. and You Are. Um, right. And I think that context has also been lost. Um, yeah. So I think whether we're talking about Mills and You Are and Rob Hood or we're talking about, you know, um, you know, early jungle. Um, I think they're both trying to express something. Um, yeah. But both of those musics have now been completely removed from context. And right. the imaginative, um, the the ways in which the artists and the listeners let their imaginations run wild, I think has completely disappeared. On, on the topic of, uh, of both kind of like, like purist Detroit techno and, and kind of uh, early jungle, I think, uh, I think it's funny that like so much of a, you know, kind of uh, late nineties up until now, uh, dance, dance discourse is built around kind of, a, a, you know, this is largely due to Simon Reynolds, a, a binary opposition between Detroit techno and, and jungle um, as if they come from very different places and have very different goals. But, uh, you know, yeah, like, I mean, ultimately like, like reinforced records is not very much different than Carl Craig. Um, yeah, I mean, these are the same. The, I think you're absolutely right. I don't know anyone who likes one and doesn't like the other. I well, that, that would not have been uncommon at all 20 years ago. Like, right. You, I mean, these were very diehard lines that were drawn. Um, and I mean, even Which is stupid. Well, they made some degree of sense culturally at the time, but um, yeah, I mean, whatever. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I, I just think like it, it's it's something that is maybe clearer now in, in hindsight than was then. That uh, yeah, that, that that yeah, like like kind of purest pure Detroit techno um, uh, is is culturally and I think even kind of formally not, uh, much closer to uh, to you know uh, the the UK hardcore continuum. Than, um, right. than, I, 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 than, I than, 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 than a lot of, uh, kind of, uh, uh, Puritans would, uh, would suggest. And Chris, I think I, I totally understand what you're, what you're saying here in that when I listen to techno made in the past five ish years, I just, I feel a lack of imagination, like a lack of, I don't know, a lack of futurism, I guess, maybe. It's just the same vision of the future that, that has been, you know, kind of, Right to death. Um, well, I mean, it's, you know, I, I don't necessarily, uh, you know, I, I don't blame anyone for not being able to imagine a future because, you know, right. we can't. 
you know, capitalism doesn't allow us to imagine a future. And so the fact that our music represents that, I think, is completely uh, correct to the, you know, sort of neoliberal uh mode that we live in um we cannot imagine a future you know as mark richard's music that fulfills a market function okay exactly i mean music is something is a commodity to be bought and not well not even digested right no music is not a commodity to be bought music is a commodity to play to europeans on drugs (laughs) (laughs) that's true 